Alright, so we're Malachi chapter 2, and just a little bit of review before we get into chapter 2. Last week we talked about how Malachi was written roughly 40 years after the book of Nehemiah. So that kind of gives you an idea of the timeline of where you're at, and um, this was it was after they, Israel had been restored to their land. It was after the prophecies were filled about the restoration, about the regathering of Israel, these things were all fulfilled that Jeremiah prophesied. And uh, that was God's fulfilling of that promise. You say, well, what about all those millennial references that are in there? Well, once again, whenever God would give, uh, whenever the prophets would speak, a lot of times they were prophesying about something that was coming in the future, in the near future, but within those prophecies were often inserted future end times events. For example, sometimes while he would be given a prophecy, maybe about the restoration of Israel or, or, or even about some kind of judgment, there would be a prophecy inserted in there about the Messiah. We see a lot of examples of that. So either way though, if whenever Jeremiah was prophesying about the restoration of Israel, which was the main thing, one of the main things he prophesied after the 70 year captivity, just because you see some references in there to millennial reign things, it doesn't mean that those prophecies weren't fulfilled. Those prophecies were fulfilled, but kind of hidden within those prophecies were other prophecies of future things. Okay? And I, you know, I'm not going to take time to go into some examples of that, but either way, we showed in 2 Chronicles 36 how the words of Jeremiah were fulfilled when they came back. So this was a very significant time major prophecies have been fulfilled and Israel once again has failed. We were looking at the, you know, calling it their report card. They messed up big time. After all God had done for them, they had done absolutely nothing with it. God has put them back in the land. He's got the ruler of the earth on their side. He's done one thing after another and they just they didn't do anything with it. They did not take advantage of this wonderful opportunity. It's kind of like Israel today. For example, I've preached in the past how that phrase, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That was quoting Old Testament. Talking about an accepted time. Now is the day of Israel's salvation. you all realize that a deliverer came and he provided a way of salvation for Israel. Now, what is Israel doing with that today? Nothing. They're doing exactly what they did with the provision that God had given them here in Malachi. God has given them their land. He's allowed them to rebuild their temple. He's you know got their enemies held off, leaving them alone. They now have every opportunity to follow after that first covenant. But what did they do with it? They did nothing with it. They despised it. And now the prophet's coming and he's called them out for it. So now, where are we today? Israel has been salvation has been provided for Israel. Their Messiah came. He paid for their sins. He made the sacrifice. All they've got to do in order to be saved and have that salvation is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what are they doing with it? Nothing. Just like they did back then. So, um, anyway, so let's go to verse one of Malachi chapter two. It says, "And now, O ye priests." This commandment is for you. So he's talking directly to the priests right here. In the first part of chapter 2, he's mainly going after the priests, not necessarily all the people. The priests, remember, the priests were extremely important because Israel standing with God was dependent on the work of the Lord's priests. We showed some examples of that last week. So in this chapter, we're going to see that the priests failed. Okay, not only had the people themselves failed, the priests had also failed, and we are reminded of why God replaced the Levitical priesthood with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We see a very good reason for that here. Thank God for the new covenant that replaced the old covenant. So, verse 2 says, If ye will not hear, if ye will not lay it to heart to give glory unto My name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. 
Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feast, and one shall take you away with it. So right here, God's talking pretty strong here. Notice He says, I'm going to spread dung in your faces. Now, why would He say that to them? That's really gross. Okay, What's the significance of that? It's humiliation is what it is. I mean, not only is that just disgusting, but that's humiliating. To have someone smear dung in your face. Okay? That's just some of the, you know, I have a video on my phone of when I confronted I went out and watched the protesters at the Mesa conference and people were wondering, you know, some of them were talking about I don't know why he wouldn't come out there and talk to us and I was I was afraid they'd be like monkeys and start hurling feces or something like that, you know, because they're gross gross enough to do something like that. So and that'd be pretty humiliating. And imagine having it spread in your face. That's what God said that He was going to do to these priests. And notice how notice what He said here. And this is interesting. I had a uh, one of these extremely pro-Jew preachers. This was back when I was just kind of transitioning on this. I was pretty sure, you know, because I I switched over on my beliefs on Israel before the rapture. And I was talking to one of these guys who was just. I mean, he is in deep on the other side, pro-Israel, has, has ministry to Israel. And I was talking to him about the whole, you know, just bloodline thing. And I'm saying, I was like, I said, how does this work with being the chosen people because of a bloodline? Because the Jews have mixed, intermixed with everybody. And, you know, and he, he's like, yeah, the bloodline's definitely been contaminated. But, he said, one thing though, if you ever see the name Kohan or Kohen, which is a Jewish name, he said that right there is a is a family line that is very pure. In fact, the Kohans or Kohen, they go back to the Levitical priesthood. So if you ever talk to a Jew whose name's Kohan or Kohen, not only is their bloodline very pure, but they are from the tribe of Levi. That was that was what he said. And you know, and I, I didn't know about this passage here then, but notice what it said right here. He said in verse three, talking to the priests, talking to the Levites, he said, "Behold, I will corrupt your seed." So you know what we can assume from this: the Levitical bloodline is not pure; it's contaminated too. So the Kohans and the Kohans are frauds. So who cares? And if and I've seen it too since then. Whenever they're um, interviewing like rabbis and things on stuff, a lot of times their last name is Kohan or Kohan. Very common. Anybody know a famous American Kohan? What's that? George M. Kohan. You know anybody know who George M. Kohan is? Oh come on! Do we not have any James Cagney fans here uh, from Ireland? All right, and they, they you know, he knows who it is. All right, George M. Kohan. He wrote uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy. All right, James Cagney. I loved that show when I was a kid. He wrote a lot of patriotic songs. I mean, he was used greatly. I mean, greatly to get America very patriotic, especially like in the World War II era and everything. Uh, they used a lot of propaganda with that guy. Obviously, a Jew. All right, a pure-blooded Jew. <laughs> Go ahead, but no. Listen, their line—it's contaminated. God said He was going to do that. Okay. And you know, while you've got all these Baptists today, oh, you're a Kohan, you know, all right, you know, I, I, I got I got a priest in front of me, I got I got a Levite in front of me. Well, you know what God said about me? God said God didn't worship me, he said, I'm gonna spread dung in your faces. So I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna corrupt your seed. Why? Because they weren't doing the Lord's work like they were supposed to. They despised the work of the Lord, they just made up their own rules as they went, they corrupted everything, and they did not fulfill their role. And God had to replace them. And they were replaced with Jesus Christ. Much better replacement. We'll say more about that as we go. So this is strong language here, but it's it's showing how God is going to shame them for their failure as priests. Okay, it's kind of like, and I've never done this. I've never done this, so don't nobody get mad at me. Alright? I've never done this because I've never had a dog. Alright, except when I was a kid. But you know, I've heard people when they're trying to train their dog to go outside, if they go in the house, what do they do? They rub their nose in it. You know, and that, that's, a, that's a way to teach them. 
I don't know if they consider that animal abuse today. I mean, I don't, you know, that's why I threw the disclaimer. But, you know, that is, you know, it's just a dog, but it's, is that not a shameful thing? You know, and, and there's, and just like some people, it's like, you know, you should never do that to an animal. All right. Okay, so we're just going to let it just go all over the house then, you know, and then we all smell like animals. But, you know, that would be very humiliating. God is doing this to them because they have humiliated God. They've made God look bad by their pathetic sacrifices that they've done. They have, they were supposed to make God look good. They were supposed to teach God's people the difference between the holy and profane. We'll see some scriptures on that. We'll go ahead and turn over to Ezekiel chapter 22. Look what it says in Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 26. Now, this is before this here, okay? They had a chance to get this right. Ezekiel called them out for this a long time ago. They had a chance to get it right. They still didn't get it right. But look what he said. He said, Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profane among them. All right, that word profane. It's like where we get the word profanity. Okay, what is profanity? It's just vile language. Okay, it's it's just you know using dirty terms. And we're supposed to teach people the difference between that which is holy and unholy, between that which is clean and that which is profane. And the priests had not done that. They had not set the example. In Ezekiel forty four twenty three says, and they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and caused them to discern between the unclean and the clean. That was their job. They were supposed to show the people how to do it. They were supposed to set the example. And they didn't do it. And God was very upset by this. Malachi 2, verse 4. It says, And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Because remember, the Levites... Keep this in mind. I might be preaching some messages on this in the near future just to kind of explain some deep stuff. And we've been talking about this a lot. But the Levites were supposed to be priests forever. Look what it's in Leviticus chapter 18. This is just, or, uh, Numbers, I'm sorry. Numbers chapter 18, verse 8. This is just one example. It says, The Lord spake unto Aaron, Behold, I also have given thee a charge of mine house offerings of all the hallowed things of the children of Israel. Unto thee have I given them by reason of the anointing and to thy sons by an ordinance forever. Y'all see that? That priesthood that God established in the Old Testament of the Levites from the line of Aaron, it was supposed to be forever. And you say, well, how could that be when Jesus Christ was going to come? Once again, Jesus Christ replaced that priesthood. That priesthood that He gave, it theoretically would have worked if the priests would have done what God told them to do. But they they failed. And we don't have time to go through all of Hebrews chapter 7. I'm not going to do that tonight. But if we go through Hebrews chapter 7, it's explaining why the priesthood of Jesus is so much better. And one of the things it mentions in there is the, the, the Levitical priests, they had an infirmity. What was their problem? They were sinners. That was their problem. Because they were sinners, they didn't live forever. They would die. And therefore, we had to just keep going on from generation to generation. But because Jesus Christ will never die, He has an unchangeable priesthood. So He is able to save to the uttermost. But it's explaining in there how that priesthood what was wrong with it was not the laws that were given to it. It was not the ordinances that were given to it. The problem with that priesthood is that they were sinners. They couldn't do it. And so God changed the priesthood. He replaced it. And Jesus Christ fulfilled all of those things that the sons of Aaron were not capable of fulfilling. But just understand, the original command, the original ordinance that was set up, it was Aaron and his sons forever. Say, well, we better call the Kohans then because, you know, we need. No, no, Jesus replaced them. 
Who cares? You know, don't kiss the hand of any Kohans if you ever meet any, alright? They're nothing special and they have a corrupted seat. Despite what the pro-Israel people are saying. So, and, and those people are just going to have to get over that. They're going to have to read the book of Malachi. So, the, you know, the problem, you know, they were, they were sinners. That's all there is to it. So, verse 5 says, My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Okay? What he's saying here, there were some priests that started out pretty good. There were some priests that we read about in the Old Testament that did a good job. I mean, Aaron, while we read about some pretty big mistakes, you know, Aaron was a good guy for the most part. Yeah, yes, he messed up some. You know, you had uh, guys like Jehoiada that was the one who protected Joash during the time of King Athaliah. I mean, everything you read about that man, I mean, that guy was a good priest. Here, this man, he was a priest that loved the Lord, that loved the laws of God, and even when there was an evil queen running the show, even when it meant endangering his life, he did the right thing. There were guys that you know did good, but and there were there was even periods of time where the priest did good. There was some long periods of time where the priests did good in Israel while the kings were doing evil. So in fact, there were you know it was more likely in their history there was more time when the priests were doing good than the kings were doing good. There was there was a lot of time when they were doing good, but they just couldn't keep it up forever, could they? They were not able to keep that going forever because the next the next generation wasn't guaranteed to do like his father before him. And so they'd mess up. Things would get out of control and sometimes it would be years before they'd get it right again. And during this time, the priesthood was not doing good. The priesthood was doing very wickedly. And even during Jesus' time, who was the high priest? You had Caiaphas who was a very wicked man and was not a believer. But you still had guys too when Jesus was born like Zacharias that was a good guy. So, you know, there there was exceptions, but the truth is, you didn't want to be depending on those priests. You couldn't count on them. You just you you couldn't it, because they were men at best. That's all they were. They were just men. Jesus Christ, he was the Son of God, he was perfect, he was sinless, that's why he's so much better. So verse eight says, But ye are departed out of the way, ye have caused many to stumble at the law. They did it. They caused people to stumble at the law. Just like Eli said to Hophni and Phinehas, you make the Lord's people to transgress. Hey, thank God, even if I mess up big time, you all can still be right with God, can't you? I could fail, I could get into all kinds of sin, and you all could go on and still do great things for God, still be right with God. Now, sadly, in a lot of churches when the Baptist pastor goes bad, a lot of the people go bad with them. You know why? Because a lot of Baptist pastors have put themselves up as a high priest. And a lot of people in the church have like made him a high priest. He's just the final say in everything. They depend on him for everything. The pastor doesn't have to just teach them the difference. He just tells them the difference. And okay, pastor, whatever you say, I'll do. I'm not going to bother reading my Bible. I'm not going to bother figuring it out for myself. I'll just blindly follow whatever you do, and then whenever they mess up and they fall off the cliff, half their church goes off the cliff with them. That is not how things should be. Jesus Christ is our high priest, and he never messes up. So no matter what I do, you all should still be fine. If you if you are right with God, and if you're following in the way you're supposed to, as long as you follow me as I follow Christ. But if I quit, but if you don't see Christ right in front of me, then you know what you do? You need to change directions. You need to follow Christ. If you see me veering off the path, that's the way it ought to be done. So, because uh, they depart out of the way, they cause many to stumble the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, 
have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. So their failure was also the failure of the people of Israel, just the same as Jesus' success is our success. That's something we need to make sure we never forget. We are, as believers today, we have a righteous standing with God. But where does our righteousness come from? It comes from the work of our high priest. Our, the Bible is very clear that faith without works is dead. So when it comes to our salvation, where is our works? Our works is in the work of Jesus Christ. That He did on our behalf is our high priest. The proof of my salvation is not in how I change my life or what I or the good works that I do or my church attendance. The proof of my salvation can be found in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in His shed blood. That is the proof of my salvation. If somebody comes to me and says, show me your works to prove that you're saved, I'm going to go to the Gospels and I'm going to show them the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and show how that was payment for my sins. And... I'm gonna, and if I mess up, if I do some kind of sin, and somebody says, you're not saved, you're not going to heaven, and they try to say it's because of your sin, I'm gonna say, uh, no, I am saved, I am gonna go to heaven. You know why? Because my righteousness is not in my works, it's in the work of Jesus Christ. And His work is still good, and as long as He remains faithful, as long as He remains the high priest, as long as He is alive, I'm good. I'm covered. We must never forget that, yet people do forget that. And I, I am a hundred and ten percent for good works after salvation. I love nothing more than to see somebody get saved and then watch God transform their life and see them get on fire for God and become a soul winner and go to church. But we should never ever use that and look at that and say, wow, they're definitely saved. Look at their works. We can rejoice in what God is doing in their life. But we cannot use that as the evidence of salvation. That is to cheapen salvation. Big time. Instead, because the price of salvation was a sinless life and a spotless lamb. Not some guy that just cleaned up his act a little bit. Do you all understand? Let's just be honest. Okay? And I'm not trying to just say this. This is just a fact. Do you all realize that we have a great deal to gain in every way by living godly? We have everything to gain from that. If you live godly, you're going to have a better marriage. You're going to have better kids. You're going to do better financially. You're going to have greater peace. You're going to enjoy. You're going to have more happiness. We, if the truth is, if people would just stop getting deceived by the world of flesh and the devil, they would all start following the Bible for selfish reasons. Because you will be better off. So the truth is, you know, all these things that we do, you know, they, they don't, they're not meant to prove that we're saved. God just wants us to have a more abundant life. And if you live honest, if you, live, if, if you follow the morals and the principles of the Bible, you'll have a better life even if you're not saved. But do you all understand? If somebody follows the principles of the Bible and they live a better, more moral, more clean life than we do, they'll still go to hell if they don't receive the free gift of salvation? Because we still deserve to go to hell today. But we have imputed righteousness because of the work of our high priest. So, I'm thankful for the new priest. Jesus' success is my success. And we're not bragging. When we tell people we're no, we know we are going to heaven, people think we're bragging because they think salvation's of works or you got to do some work to keep your salvation. No, we are not bragging. <clears throat> so it says in verse ten, "Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem." For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. So, something to keep in mind here. Whenever the kingdoms of Israel split, 
and they had the northern and the southern kingdom. It was the southern kingdom that was went into captivity in Babylon years later, years after the northern tribes went into captivity. It was mainly Judah, Benjamin, and Levi in that southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, during all those years of captivity, they got all intermingled with the Gentiles. And what were they called in Jesus' day? They were called Samaritans. But in that southern kingdom, while you might have had a few remnants of other tribes, for the most part, all you really read about in the New Testament as far as tribes people were in are Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. The Apostle Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Why is that? Because those were the ones in the southern kingdom. Those were the main tribes that had been preserved. So, in the first part of this chapter, you know, but Benjamin there, you know, it seems that Benjamin wasn't a huge tribe. There was a lot of them. You don't hear a lot about them. Okay? But, in this chapter, notice how the prophet, he's going after the priests first, the Levites, and then now he's kind of going after Judah. And Judah is where the kings were. The kings were always in the line of Judah. Now, during this time, they didn't have a king. Okay? Uh, I think it was Jeconiah and his brethren. They were the last ones. Then you had Zedekiah that was kind of placed there. He he wasn't the rightful king. But then after that, they never had. A, you know, they didn't really have a king again for a long time. And then in Jesus' day, you had Herod, and he wasn't even in the, somebody who was the rightful king. Actually, the rightful king during Jesus' day would have been Joseph. Because Joseph was in that line. And then obviously Jesus Christ. But that's I don't want to get side I don't want to get sidetracked and all that. But Judah and Levi were the main tribes that were left during this time and they both had failed. So just like God's called out Levi in this chapter, now he's going after Judah. And he tells them that they had loved and married the daughter of a strange God. Now, how did they do that? What did that look like? Well, go back to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. So remember, this is, this is several years before. So they've had, they've had time to get this right. And we see an example of them uh, trying to fix things in their own pathetic, clumsy way um, in this chapter. But look, let's start reading in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. It says, In those days also I saw Jews that had married the wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. I love that picture there of them just... He's plucking off their hair. Okay? Now, what did this look like? What did this look like, Nehemiah the Jew running around pulling the hair out of other Jews? Have you ever seen the Three Stooges? All right, those guys are all Jews. Moe's always ripping the hair out of, <laughs> out of Larry's. That's a, that's a terrible illustration, but I, I've got that picture in my head. When I read that, I, I guess that's just what Jews do when they get really mad. They rip each other's hair out. And um, ah, they had it coming. They deserved it. That was bad. But that's the image I get in my head when I read this passage. I know that's carnal, but um, I, I love that passage. So he said, You're not supposed to do it. He said, that, Did not even Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause a sin. Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives? And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember Sanballat? He was one of the guys that was leading the, uh, uh, leading the charge against trying to disrupt the work that they were doing on those walls. And here you got the high priest's son. His father-in-law is Sanballat. And what did he do? He chased him from him. All right, now what did that look like? Did you ever see Mo chasing one of the other students around with the two by four? I mean, that, that's a, we got like a three students episode going on here. That's how bad it was. 
in Israel during that time, at least you had one guy with a little bit of righteous indignation going around, ripping people's hair out, chasing them with two-by-fours. I added the two-by-four part in. So this guy, i got another three stooges in my head right now. But you know, this is justified anger right here. It says, Remember them, O my God, because they have defied, defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. This is what Malachi said. They did. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business, and for the wood offering at the times appointed for the first fruits, remember me, O my God, for good. So, right here, what we are seeing in Malachi is a reminder of what Nehemiah had flipped out on them for. This was a very bad thing that they had done in intermingling, and they had they had intermingled to the point where their children didn't even fully speak the Hebrew language anymore. They had just kind of a combined language of a wicked people that they despised and God's people. This was a shame and embarrassment to Israel. And it, it, it made Nehemiah mad. Nehemiah, who had been in captivity, and had remember, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah was like, um, he was like that missionary. I used to see this back in the days before social media. I remember, I would always talk to missionaries about this. These missionaries, they would go over to these foreign countries for several years, and then they would come back, and it was like they remained the same, but everybody else had changed. And I would, I would always ask them, what have you noticed? Because the changes we see are always often so gradual that we don't notice them. But missionaries, they would come back, and it was like, whoa, this is acceptable in church now? Oh, we're singing these kind of songs that we're wearing, these kind of clothes now? You know, missionaries, they were always kind of behind the times. Because they would go to these other countries and they'd get really close to the Lord during that time because all they had was the Lord. Now, today, missionaries are the most trendy ones. You know why? Because they go over to these other countries and they spend all their days on social media seeing what the culture is doing. And so they're now today it's completely different with missionaries. They are right with the program. You know, they change right along with everybody else, sadly. But Nehemiah, while he had been in captivity, he remained the same. He's still doing things the right way. He's still staying close to the Lord. He's grieved at the thought that the temple is gone in Jerusalem, and the king notices this. Remember, the king saw. You know, Nehemiah, that he was sad. He's like, hey, you're not usually sad in my presence. He told him why. And then the king ended up commissioning him to go back and overseeing the work. So imagine Nehemiah's shock when he comes back and he sees that, whoa, I was faithful when I'm in this foreign country around a bunch of pagans. You all are at least here in Jerusalem. You know, you could be doing, you know, it should be easier for you to do better. And what are they doing? I mean, they're speaking half in the speech of Ashdod. And of course, this blew him away. He hadn't been following what they were doing on Facebook for the last 70 years to see how, what the trends were. He thought he was going to go back there and it was going to be like it was before. And it wasn't. And it made him very angry. And rightfully so. And I miss those days when those missionaries used to come back because it was often convicting. You'd see that they still dress the same way. They did four years ago. You know, they, they, they did all those things the same. They didn't change with everyone else. But social media has ruined that for missionaries today. They're, they're the first ones to go anymore. But look what it says in Malachi 2.12. It says, The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this ye have done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Now, uh, this right here okay, gets me going. I, I should preach a whole message just on this. Okay, Let's look at this again. Because you all are going to think I'm just stretching this. You all know I love to go after the camp meeting crowd, alright? I don't try to make stuff fit. You know, just so I can make fun of the camp meeting crowd. As much fun as I have with them. But look what it says again. Verse 13. 
Ye have done, the, and this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. Notice how these people again came to the old-fashioned altar, crying all over the place, crying, weeping calling on the Lord, but God said, I'm sick of that. I'm not going to take your offering anymore. Why is that? Well, remember what God said to Samuel? To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. God got tired of them coming and having their camp meetings where everybody gets worked up into an emotional frenzy. They all come crying at the altar and then the pastors come taking pictures of the tear stains at the altar. Yes, taking pictures of the piles of tears and snot at the altar and saying, Oh, the Lord certainly moved today. I've seen that. I saw a pastor I know. He tweeted a picture of a pool of tears on the altar saying from his son. I'm glad to see his heart's still tender. You know, and, and I, I saw I saw another preacher one time. He went and he's taking pictures and in front of the old fashioned altar that on, on the, on, in the front of the building, there was just all of these spots where there's tears everywhere. And he said, Oh man, we had a move of God today. Look at well, look at all these tears. People on their faces crying out before the Lord, Hey, we had revival. Man, the Lord showed up. It was good. You know, I just saw this week John Jenkins. He had he had to resign his church. He's been for months. I had somebody contact me about this a while back. For months, he has been getting hammered because that church has had scandal after scandal after scandal, and he's covered it up. He's covered it up. I mean, just adultery, fornication, perversion has been running rampant in that church. The man's been illegally covering up. They've had several people in that church that have gone to jail. And so he resigned. Oh, and has taken another church in North Carolina. Well, I remember last time I heard John Jenkins preach, he got up there talking about, man, you're blessed or ain't never been blessed until you know, you've actually been to one of these camp meetings. He's telling this story about this fellow. He wanted to go to a camp meeting one time. He's never really seen it where the Holy Ghost had really fallen in a service before. He never experienced anything like that. And boy, he, he, we showed up at that meeting. And it was Charles... The guy's name's Charles Spurgeon something. I forgot his last name. Anybody know who that is? It's, it's, his name's Charles Spurgeon something. He's some preacher. He was, a, he was like a hell's angel biker. Got born again. He's a preacher now. And he was telling some story about him, and he's like, "Man, that he was up there giving his testimony, telling the story." And he, I don't, I won't remember all the details of the story, but he's like, "Man, all of a sudden, that guy who'd never really experienced anything like that before, man, he got it. Oh man, I tell you what, he just started weeping, he just started shouting." And man, the Holy Spirit fell on that service like you've never seen before. This man who just sit there like a bump on a log half the time, all of a sudden, man, he's running around. He's whooping and hollering. I'm telling you, you ain't never seen nothing like that. Boy, just revival's breaking out. And they're always, he's telling all these stories, and I'm thinking, you know what? I, I'm reading about all this scandal junk. It was like, if you really experienced revival in your church, I was, I was told by a preacher one time, I was like, man, you need to go to the camp meeting out in Gaylord, Michigan. Gaylord, Michigan. He's like, he's like, man, that's the spout where the glory comes out. That's exactly what he said about it. He said, that's the spout where the glory comes out. Well, you know, if the glory's coming out in that place all the time, how come they can't keep perverts out of their church? How come they can't keep their staff from molesting people and from fornicating? You know why? Because the problem is there's a lot of people that are real good at getting up and going to the altar and weeping, but they never change anything. They never fix it. They never actually bother just going and obeying God. They're like that son who goes and says to his father, I go, and then he doesn't go. God's not pleased with that. And that's all that we have at all these camp meetings. They just have a bunch of people coming down to the altar, weeping, saying, I'm going to go, and they don't go. Nothing changes. And God's sick of it. Every year, you have these teenagers that come to the youth conference, crying all over the altar, and then they go home and they do the exact same junk. 
God hates that kind of thing. He's weary of their offering. Who cares about your tears? And these preachers are always going around taking their altar pictures. Sam Gipp at the Anti-Anderson Conference. What was he doing? After he gets done just doing nothing but talking about Pastor Anderson. The title of his message, The Truth About Stephen Anderson. He gets up and he spends an entire message talking about Stephen Anderson. Well, you have to have an invitation at Old IFB Church. So Keith Gomez has an altar call. you know, And, you, and somebody's got to go. People are going up to the altar. I don't know why. Maybe everybody in the church was listening to Pastor Anderson. They're all confessing and forsaking that. I don't know. But if you watch in the video, you can see Sam Giff. He's like walking around taking pictures of people at the altar. And that's what all these evangelists do. They're always taking pictures of everybody at the altar because that's a picture of a move of God to them. But you know what? God's sick of these people coming and weeping and giving the offering and pouring their tears and their snot all over the altar and then going home and doing the same junk. And that's all they've got going on in that camp meeting world today. That's all that's going on in that movement. And it's a bunch of garbage. And it doesn't work. It's fake. These people, they just have their emotional highs. Every youth conference you go to, there's going to be at least one service where you have all the teenage girls down gathering in a circle at the altar hugging each other. And it's a big weeping cry fest. And it doesn't matter because they're all going to go home and they're going to do the same junk they did before. Nothing changes. And God is sick of it. They were good at doing that in Israel. Oh man, we just got called up by the prophet. Alright, let's go to the altar and cry. God said, I'm sick of that. I'm not going to accept your sacrifices anymore. It's time you actually get right and actually start obeying. Well, I understand what you're saying, but it all starts at the altar. Every great revival, it all starts at an old-fashioned altar. It all starts with some tears. You ain't going to go out there and you do the right thing until you get broken. You come down to the old-fashioned altar... And you pour your heart out to God. No, because people doing all that, they're not going out and doing the, doing the right thing. I, I watched a guy, I was watching one of these conferences, I won't say where it was, I was, I was watching this one conference I used to go to, and altar call time came, and the message that was preached was just junk. I mean, old dude just got up there and rambled and said nothing. I watched the whole thing. And they did. They have their altar call, and you know, everybody's everybody's going to the altar. And I, I watch this one guy that I know. It's just a phony. I, I knew he was a phony then. I just didn't have the proof at the time. But I knew he was a phony. And he did. Man, he just goes dramatic. I just remember dramatically watching him go walk up to the altar, just all all sad and broken like. And I'm seeing that. I was just like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And, and I, I don't know how to explain it. There's just there's there's these theatrical ways that things are done. It'd, be, it'd take too much time to describe, but he's doing it, man. He takes the dramatic walk up there. He had it all time just perfect. You don't go right away. You go later like you gave the Holy Spirit time to convict you and make you leave your seat. You know, he, did, he, did that whole, he did that whole thing, and I was just like, oh, look. Look what he's doing. You know, that guy's looking at jail time right now. <laughs> but it's like, who cares? about your big cry fest. It's nothing if you don't go home and something actually change. And I don't see in the Bible where it all starts at the mourner's bench. I don't see that. It all it either starts or it doesn't start. And if you don't go home and change anything, it never started. Okay? Nothing got started up here. So people just need they they need to get over that. It's just it's, it's ridiculous. God's not impressed by your tears if they don't lead to repentance. You don't actually change anything. So, Camden crowd, they think because they got someone to shed a tear, they had a revival. Sluter, every time he gets somebody saved and they cry, he always mentions how they cried. It's like that's, that's additional proof. They cried. And, and I've had that happen before too. I mean, that's fine. You know, if somebody, when they get saved, if they want to cry, praise the Lord. You know, some people are emotional, some people aren't. But it's like, well, we know they got saved because they cried. No. I see here where God is not impressed by these tears. If somebody wants to get up here and cry, or if somebody wants to cry on out giving the Gospel, that's fine. But if they don't believe the Gospel, those tears will do nothing. 
God's not going to accept that those tears as an offering for sin. It, it doesn't count unless they actually believe. So verse 14 says, Yet ye say, Wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant, and did not he make one, yet had the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel saith that he hateth putting away. That's divorce. He hateth it. Hateth it. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. God was not going to accept their sacrifices because they had not fixed what they had done wrong. Nehemiah called them out for it years ago. They hadn't fixed it. Yeah, when Nehemiah is pulling their hair out and chasing around with two by fours, they're crying. But at the end of the day, they didn't fix these things. They didn't get these things right. They continued on in the same sin who cared about their cry fest that they had. Didn't fix anything. It says, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. You weary the Lord with your decision cards that you made. I'll pledge to read my Bible every day for the next year. And you don't. You know, I pledge to be a missionary to Uganda, you know. And then you don't. You know, you just go and you weary the Lord with your words and with your pledges, just making all these decisions. You never go through with anything. You're just wearing God out with that stuff. You're just making Him angry. You'd be better off just shutting your mouth. Nobody's making you vow a vow. You know, how about instead of you just vowing, I'm surrendering my life to be a preacher of the Gospel. How about you just go be a preacher of the Gospel? I'm surrendering my life. But you're a full-time Christian worker. No, why don't you just go be a full-time Christian worker? How about you stop getting up, filling out your stupid decision cards, telling everybody what you're going to do, and how about you just go do it? There's a concept. Because God doesn't care about your words. He wants to see your actions. So, so, you, so you've wearied, wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, wherein have we wearied Him? When ye say, Everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? Okay, you're saying, Oh, the Lord's so pleased with what we've done. You know, look at our stack of decision cards that we have here today. The Lord's so pleased with us right now. Oh, really? Because none of these people changed. You're going to brag about the stack of decision cards you had from last year, not even realizing that's the same stack this year because it's all the same kids making all the same decisions. They didn't follow them last year either. They're not going to follow them this year. And you've wearied the Lord with this, this stuff. You're saying He's delighting them. Boy, isn't God good. Look at all these pictures I've got of tear puddles. And you say, boy, God sure must be pleased. The Lord sure moved among us today. No, He didn't. And the fact that you're glorying that and making a big deal about that, you're making God angry. It's a dangerous thing to claim you got right with God and had revival when you didn't. We had revival today. We have tears. No, you have not. Now, you could have. Something could have started. But how about we wait until we actually see something? How about we wait until people actually go home and you start finding out they are living for the Lord? They did give up their pornography. They did actually start reading their Bible. They did go soul winning. How about at one of these conferences that they have every year where every year everyone reads the decisions of things they're going to do? How about they have people fill out a card saying, this is a decision I made last year and I followed through on. How about they fill out a card saying, I read through my Bible this last year. I gave up pornography and I haven't looked at it in over a year. I've been soul winning every week in my church for the last year. You know why? Because that picture is going to look really pathetic on Twitter when they got a stack of decision cards that thick. Because that's all they're going to get. And that person's probably lying. That's the kind of people that they get in these conferences making these things. Because the truth is, a person who really does do right and is doing what the Lord wants them to do, they don't feel like filling out a paper. Look what I did. Because they actually have some humility. But that would be better than them filling out cards saying all the things that they're going to do. That would be much better. So it's dangerous for a preacher to get up after an emotional altar call where a lot of tears have been shed to declare there's been a move of God. You can't declare that until things have actually changed. 
If you all come up tonight, you're just so overwhelmed from the preaching. Everybody's crying at the altar. All right, you know, well, something's going on here. You know, that's not really like our church. Something's, ha- something's happening here. But you know, before I go tweeting anything, I'm going to wait and see if some things change. See if things actually get better. See if some things improve. Hey, if I can ask you a week later, that decision that you made, you know, we still got a puddle of tears, you know, st- tear stains all over our altar. How'd you do this week? Did you actually change anything? Or did you just stain our carpet? You know, what, what, did you, what actually took place? That's what actually matters, what changes. So once again, Israel was a mess at this time. They were just as bad as they had ever been, but they thought they were good. He's calling out, wherein have we wearied the Lord? Wherein has God loved us? Wherein have we robbed God? What have we done? This was the attitude of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Exact same attitude. And this is why Jesus got along better with the publicans and the harlots than He did the Pharisees. Because the publicans and the harlots, they were willing to admit they were wrong. And they needed help. But the Pharisees, we have a sin. We're Abraham's seed. We're great. And God was not pleased by that. And He saved the publicans and the harlots. And He rejected the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees tried to bring their own offerings where the publicans and the harlots, they called out for the Lord's salvation. And they're the ones that got it. So, we see not much changed from Malachi to the time when Jesus Christ came. And things haven't really changed today. we got the same trash going on today in churches that they had going on in Malachi's day. And you think maybe, it's like, you know, how, how come these camp meeting preachers don't ever read that verse? Because they don't read the Old Testament. Unless it's David and Goliath, because that'll preach. You know, uh, they're not going to actually get any doctrine from the Old Testament. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. I pray You'll help us to learn from this. Lord, help us to not just be emotional people always quick to make a decision, but help us to be a people that are just obedient and will actually let the Word of God change us and affect our actions in a good way. And help us to be a good example and to set an example like the priests were supposed to. Help us to be a light to the world. Help us to teach people the difference between... Holy and profane, in your name we pray. Amen. Let's go.